So with me today, I have a very special guest, part of our little series we're doing on uh, organ donation and, and donating life. Uh, so with me, I am joined by Brian. How are you doing today? Good. How are you? Pretty good. So I have no structure for a lot of the stuff I do. I, I believe in just like letting people share their journey. Brian is pretty cool because he actually works with uh, the American Heart Association as well, I believe, right? Correct. Yeah, I, I've done some donate work. Um, I've done some volunteer work and I've done some speech work for them in the past. So he's locked in and sharing his journey for sure. So I just like to just let people start from the beginning. And pretty much I always tell people it's the most silent I ever am. <laughs> um, it's just letting people just go with their stories and we'll just take it from there. Does that sound good? Yeah, no, that works out perfect. So Perfect. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. Take us from the beginning. Yeah, so that works. Yeah, so my journey started from, from organ donation when I was about nine years old. So I was a relatively healthy kid. I actually don't ever really remember being sick. I just remember getting the chicken pox once, and that's all I remember. Don't remember colds, flus, or anything. Uh, I was active, played sports, and uh, in June of 1990, I was nine years old, and I was playing baseball. I remember I hit a ball on the left field, and I uh, I couldn't make it to first base without running a breath. And so my coach yelled at me, told me I was running like an old lady. I just figured I was just really tired that day. That's kind of harsh for a nine-year-old, by it the way. It was. It was. We were very competitive <laughs> at nine, trying to make sure we won the tournament for the day, I guess. But, uh, yeah, she, she yelled at me. I went and sat on the bench and just figured that, well, I must be just a little tired. You know, I hadn't really experienced that before. Uh I was pretty proud of the hit, so I was a little bummed I didn't make it to first. But uh, that next morning, I woke up and I uh, told my mom that my heart was beating real fast. None of my family was in the medical field. So, you know, she just kind of sat with me for a few minutes, took my pulse, kind of how you normally take it on your wrist, and realized that it was a little fast. And ended up going to my um, primary care doctor the next day, and he, ran, you know, just ran a couple tests and realized that it was high. I think my resting heart rate at the time was like 110 or 112. Oh, geez. And that was pretty high for being you know, nine years old, and I could definitely feel it, like, jumping out of my chest. You know, quickly thereafter, I saw a cardiologist, like, two days later, um, and, like, a week after that, I was diagnosed with dilated cardiomyopathy, and that was back in 1990, so it wasn't the internet, there wasn't a lot to do, so you really just had to really look it up for or word of mouth. <laughs> just had to, like, go to Encyclopedia Britannica, yeah, we had to, <laughs> go to your local library. Yeah, we had to bust out the encyclopedias we had in the basement that we never used, and... <laughs> Somebody sold them to you door to door. They did. That's how we bought them. That's one of the other memories I have from school, that gentleman coming and selling us three books at a time for about a year. Um, <laughs> so he definitely came in handy. So we, we looked it up, and, you know, the doctors kind of explained, you know, what was going on. And, you know, fast forward, you know, that was in June, and then I rapidly got ill. So from June through October, I was in and out of the hospital multiple times. Then finally, um, you know, at the beginning of October, I was like in the hospital, in the hospital. I was too ill to go home. Um, and over like a two to three weeks span, 
uh, you know, when you have transplants, they have to quote unquote work you up so to make sure you can go through tests and make sure, sure you'll be healthy enough to actually survive the surgery. So did they know that right away that you would need the transplant? No. So, so back then it was just, they knew my heart was enlarged. They couldn't really figure out why there was nothing really that triggered it. I, I had, we were thinking back, I had a rash at one point when we were playing, we thought it was poison ivy. That's what I got diagnosed with. Cause we used to play in the field and build forts as kids. We were running all over the place. And that was the only thing that really kind of stuck out to my parents. And like I said, back then, there wasn't a ton of detail on it. So they knew my heart was enlarged. They knew it was problematic, um, but they didn't know how fast it would progress or how serious it really was until, you know, a few months later when I was really knocking on death's door there. And they they worked. So like I said, I was in the hospital in, Oct- in October, never really left. And on October 19th, I finally passed, like, the final test that you have to pass in order to kind of be on the transplant list. And I ended up being on the list for nine hours, and I ended up getting my heart on October 20th. It was very fortunate because when we were talking to the doctors and saying, yeah, once you get on the list, you know, it takes anywhere from months to years. And I think they, they knew at that point I didn't have the didn't have the time. And, yeah, I was on the list for nine hours, and then that next day a heart became available, and I was able to get transplanted. That's just so... I can't even believe that timeline. Yeah, it was especially unheard of, you know, I keep referring to myself as older, but back in the 90s, like, everybody was like, you know, it takes two months to a year. You know, it's really hard to find a match. And granted, I I had a good blood type, and I was, you know, the the size of my body and stuff. There was a decent chance that I could find something, but really not that quick. And come to find out after my surgery, I was so sick that I could, like I said, I barely passed the workup test. And then I was on the list for the nine hours, and they, they ended up telling us a couple of weeks after my surgery that if I went and got the heart like that next day, I wouldn't have made it past the 20th. So I was extremely, extremely fortunate and very blessed to get that first chance at receiving a donated heart. What was that like? I mean, being so young and having a heart transplant, what does that do to you socially? I mean, going to school was probably more going to the hospital, right? Yeah, so it was really weird. So. Uh, you know, I was so used to being active, like I was saying, I was playing sports, doing a lot of stuff, and then all of a sudden I was kind of like gone. Like my, my my schoolmates knew that I was sick, so they would write me letters, and I missed about four or five months of school, um, but I was still able to get a tutor. I, I never missed a grade, and I just rolled right back into school right after I got healthy enough to go to physically go back. But I think when you go through something at that age, um, kids are inherently stronger. You know, I think we'll get into it later, but, you know, I had... I mean, you know, another transplant later in life, I feel like I was stronger at nine than I was when I had my second transplant just because, you know, you're a little naive to it. You know, you're ill. But you don't really know the ramifications of life and death to, to the degree, to the degree you probably should at nine years old. Um, so it was, and the support I had around me was really good. I had a really good family foundation, a lot of friends and a lot of people come to see me and that helped me get through it and, I really tried to live a normal life and I still do to this day. I don't, I don't live like I have quote unquote a transplant. I live about as normal life as anybody else. And I think that has helped me mentally, you know, not focus on the fact that, you know, I take meds twice a day to keep me alive and I have somebody else's heart beating in my chest. So you're, you're doing good though for how long? Cause you teased at it. You've had two hearts. I have had two hearts. So the first one uh, lasted me 20 years. Um, I had, I had some complications. So right after I had the first one, um, I was the 219th heart transplant at Loyola, Loyola University Medical Center in Chicago is where I had my first heart. So I was the 219th done there. I was really healthy for about four years. Um, and then 
randomly out of the blue in 1994, I had a really severe bout of rejection. It really came out of left field. It happened like it was right after school got out. And then all of a sudden, I just didn't really feel good. Um, didn't have the fast heartbeat or anything, but I, I uh, kind of like where your liver is. I felt enlarged. And what I realized later, I was just retaining a ton of water and heart failure. So I knew something was wrong, you know, told my mom, they airlifted me from my local hospital in the town where I lived back to Chicago, ran a bunch of tests on me, told me I was in heart failure, told me I had severe rejection, told me like at that point I would need another transplant. There wasn't anything they can do. And then one of the doctors ended up throwing out the idea that maybe they could try like plasmapheresis therapy on me, which I think at the time was a relatively new procedure. So they did that from like a quote unquote experimental standpoint to see if, you know, they could flush out the antibodies so my body would stop rejecting my heart. And I did think, uh, every other day, three or four days, every three or four rounds of that. And my rejection kind of reversed itself. And I didn't have another issue until I ended up needing my other transplant and, you know, within the, within the 20 year time frame. That's incredible, though, that somebody was like, well, let's try it. But you were how old at that age? I was I was just turning 14. Okay. So I was just getting ready to really start like that junior high school, getting ready to go into ninth grade, kind of really coming into my own as a you know a young adult. Right. Uh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, you know, I spent the whole summer in the hospital, like from June all the way through at the start of school. Just sidelined. Just, just sidelined. Yeah, I was. Um, and then. After that rejection episode, I got better, but, you know, they pumped you full of steroids to make you feel better. So then I gained a ton of weight. And then at 14, that's not the most ideal thing for a 14-year-old boy or girl, but boy for, you know, me to gain a ton of weight right before school started. So it took me about a year to kind of shed that, the prednisone weight off. You know, my, cheek, my cheeks got really puffy. And, uh, you know, looking back on it, though, it definitely saved my life, the, the leaps and bounds that the, the doctor and my, my team went for me to try to do something experimental. Think outside the box. Yeah. And very fortunate. It worked, reversed it. I think I'm, you know, very fortunate that it happened and probably one of the few that it's happened to and completely reversed my rejection. I, you know, I had that heart until 2011 when I ended up needing, um, needing that second one. So what happened leading up to that experience? Yeah, so I, I went, you know, I went to high school um, and I went to a junior college and then did the rest of my college online, lived a really fairly normal life. I traveled a lot, um, traveled the world, actually, with my job. I got a job and I had a team that was located over in, in Asia, lived a normal life, traveled constantly all the time across the country. You never really know that I had a transplant. And then I'd go in every year for an annual checkup uh, just to make sure I didn't have any blockages and I didn't have, you know, my heart wasn't rejecting anymore. So ever since that rejection episode in 1994, my, my heart developed um, some blockages because of the rejection. So in around 2006, I think 2006, 2007, every time I would go in for the angiogram to check the pressures and everything, they would end up having to do stent procedures because my arteries would start to close because the rejection was starting to take over. I wasn't in rejection, but the rejection did so much damage to my heart in 1994. I was getting to the point where my heart wasn't able to, to take it anymore. So it like may have like caused scar tissue and, and just kind of made things worse, I guess, for those valves and everything. Yeah, it really just progressed the, uh, it progressed the disease. So I didn't have high cholesterol, but my heart was acting like I just had cholesterol issues and continually to continue to clean my arteries. So I'd go in, I'd go in for a six-month checkup. I'd go back another six months, and every time they would do, they would put stents in. They would put stents in with the medicine that had the rejection medicine in it to kind of slow the progress. Um, and we did that from, like, 2007 up until I got to the point where they couldn't stent me anymore. How many stents did you end up having? 
I had probably around 22 wow. over the four or five years. Yeah, they they every six months they would put like three to four or five in just to open up my arteries again. And then the funny thing was I was living in Atlanta at the time. I, my transplant team had moved from Chicago to Madison. So I've been with the same company for, for 19 years now and work's been really good with me. But what would happen was we, we used to run a shuttle back and forth between our offices in Illinois and our offices in, in Georgia. So I used to be able to take the company plane home on like a Wednesday. I'd have my procedure on a Thursday and then I'd fly back to Atlanta on Monday. Gosh. Like nobody knew any different. And then I just go right back to work. My boss knew what was going on and that was it. But I did that just on a repeated cycle. So like I said, unless I told you what was going on. Nobody would know. You never knew. And I've been very asymptomatic and very fortunate in that regard. And the only reason I kind of bring up that, that shuttle trip is because on one of the one of the step procedures I had um, on the on the flight back, I started you know, like feeling just a little tired, and I figured, well, you know, it's just kind of a normal procedure. Um, and this was in 2000, uh, 2008. I was walking from the, from where the plane touched down to my car, and I got really out of breath, just extremely out of breath. I was just like, well, this feels a little weird. That was on I that was on a Monday. So I went to work on Tuesday. My team was like, Brian, you're not looking really good. You're looking a little gray. I'm like, yeah, maybe I'll go get checked out. You know, I just had, you know, the stent procedures done like four or five days ago. Maybe I'll just get checked out to make sure nothing was going on. So I went to the local ER in Atlanta, and I said, hey, I've had a heart transplant. You know, I just had stents put in last week. I just went in very nonchalant. I said, you know, I'm just feeling a little little weak, a little woozy. I don't know if it's from the medicine, um, but, you know, I should probably get it checked out. So they're like, okay, let's just do an EKG. And I said, okay. So they ran the EKG, and I remember the doctor came back, and he's like, well, He's like, well, sir, I had a heart attack. And I was like, no. I said, no, my EKG reads wrong. You know, I've had a transplant, so that means the, you know, the EKG will read like I had a heart attack. And he's like, no, I'm pretty sure you had a heart attack. He's like, I can tell by the way this is reading that it's a little more serious than your transplant. And I was like, okay, well, I had no symptoms other than that one bout of short breath, and I guess I looked pretty peaked. This is crazy. Yeah. So they, so they transferred me from ambulance to the, uh, to the Emory University and. What they ended up doing, they ended up doing another um, angiogram just to kind of check to see what they could do. And the doctor was like, well, you know, it looks like your heart and your body has self-corrected itself. So where I had one massive artery that was completely 100% blocked, and that's, you know, what caused the, the heart attack. But my body over time, since my heart was damaged in 94, my, my body over time created all these capillaries and, and valves that my body kind of recirculated itself. Oh, so it like perfused its own self. It did. So it built all these canals. So my, my, my blood was pumping to all my extremities completely fine. And my heart function was completely normal because my body had kind of, my arteries had kind of branched out and kind of built connectivity kind of around the rest of my body. And, uh, yeah, and I just went on to live, you know, a normal life up until I needed my transplant in 2011. Ran, lifted, Worked out all the time, no symptoms other than that really two weeks of the initial heart attack and not feeling well. And then, you know, for all intents and purposes, everything went back to normal. So did they have to do another stent, though, when you had that? They didn't that time because because uh, I just had some put in. But it was one of the stents that closed that, um, that was the issue. So then, yeah, so 2009 and 2010, I had three more stent procedures on the other arteries that weren't 100% blocked. Because we were trying to prolong the heart as long as we could before I had to go through another another major surgery. I mean, that must have just always been looming, the fact that you would still need another transplant, even with all the stents, right? Yeah, we knew at some point it would come up and we would need uh, definitely need another one. But um, I think 
at least for me, I've always kind of lived with the lived under the impression that you know I just t- take each day as it comes. So I'd go in and they tell me, okay, we put three stents in, we'll see you in six months. So I just kind of thought, well, I'll just keep doing this until the point where they can't. And then in October of 2010, that's when they told me that they couldn't do anything else for me. You know, everything was, you know, they couldn't stent me anymore. My heart was to the point where I had, I needed to have a second transplant. And that's really when I started to pursue pursue looking for a doctor that would that would work on me and perform. Um, kind of my second surgery. So at first, though, though, given the rejection and all the all the issues, lasted me until I was 29. And outside of the one rejection episode and and the heart, I'm saying it lightly, but the heart attack, I I really I lived like a completely normal life. So then you get to what did you say, 2011, 2012? Yep. Yeah. So the end of 2010, um, I got a hold of a doctor at the University of Chicago, Dr. Jeevanandam. He was uh, one of the leading edge doctors in terms of heart surgery, heart transplants. So I uh, had reached out to him like the, uh, a couple of days before Thanksgiving in 2010. He called me the day before Thanksgiving, that Wednesday, asking if I could come up and meet with him. So I, I flew up to Chicago. My family still lived here. Work continued to move me around. So I was living in Tennessee for about a year since then. Um, yeah, so I flew up and met with him. And, uh, you know, we, we talked about, you know, needing a second transplant. And at the time, um, you know, I wanted to do it without blood for religious reasons. And he was the only doctor in the country that would do it. So I had met with doctors at Vanderbilt, doctors at Cleveland Clinic, um, and uh, there had never been a second transplant done without blood before ever. Um, and he was just extremely confident in his ability to do the procedure. So uh, I got admitted I think January 3rd, and I'm very fortunate that I was able to get transplanted then on January 11th of 2011. Wow. That's kind of impressive just with how your wait time was significantly shorter than the average. Yes. And the the funny thing was, you know, during that wait time, there was a few days that they came in and like, well, we found a heart, but it isn't the the exact right one that we want for you. So we're going to pass on it. And that's like the weirdest thing I think you'd ever hear in your life that, you know, the heart became available. And it's like, but it's not quite the match we're looking for, so we're going to give it another day. And so that happened, I think, like two or three times. And I was like, well, at what point is it the right match? You know, I'm in the hospital and I'm waiting for this, you know, for this another life-saving procedure to be done. And uh, they're like, I think we passed on three hearts before they came in um, the morning of uh, January 10th. They're like, hey, we found a heart. It's a young, strong heart. And we're going to move forward with this with the surgery. And then I ended up having that surgery on the on the 11th of January of 2011. So what goes through your mind when you hear that there's a match and that, you know, it's go time? Yeah. So I was pretty excited at that point because I knew I knew I needed I knew for sure. And I was old enough to know that I needed it. So I was one extremely blessed, extremely fortunate. And um, I'm a pretty even even killed guy. So like my family showed a lot more emotion than I did. So I was just I was like, okay, let's get this done. Let's get ready. And I really just wanted to get back to get back to like my normal life. So I was ready to roll. So it's surreal because you understand the gift that organ donation is, you know, somebody has to pass away in order for you to have this chance. So I never take that for granted, especially with both my transplants there. The first one uh, was a 16 year old girl that had died in a, a drunk driving accident. Somebody hit her and the heart actually came from Tennessee for my first transplant. So very, you know, appreciative of the family, signed their children up to be organ donors. And then the second one as well, they wouldn't give me as much detail because of the HIPAA laws, you know, that had transpired over the years. But they did tell me it was a young, strong heart. And 
the, the gratitude that I, that I have felt and continue to feel is, is a little overwhelming just because, like I said, you know that somebody had to have passed away in order for you to have that chance. So I think that's the biggest thing that hit me more than anything is is kind of the, the feeling of, of appreciation for the selfless act that, that people take. Yeah, that has to be pretty emotional or roller coaster of emotions, I should say, to be, like you said, so elated that there's a match and that, you know, this is happening in real time. But then the reality of the, the situation being that, like you said, somebody there's a deceased person in the equation that is allowing this to happen. Yeah. Cause I think a lot of times, you know, people know of organ donations, you know, sometimes they check the box, sometimes they don't, but they don't realize that when you actually sign up that, you know, if something unfortunate does happen to you, it really is, you know, a chance at life, prolonging life or helping somebody else's life out. I think that's one of the most selfless acts you can do as a person is that if you are in a position where something does happen and, and, and you're in a position where you pass away, that, you know, the gift that you can keep on giving is is your organs to people that need it. And and one of the things that I'm most fortunate about is those those two donors. I'll be forever grateful grateful for them and their families because they're honestly the only reason I'm alive today. Um especially through the ups and downs of everything that I've gone through. I you know the 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 benefit of being around and having a chance to breathe air and live my life and spend time with my family and do what I want. You know, those families don't have it with their with their uh, lost loved ones. So I try to live every life, every day of my life, very appreciative of these uh, donated organs and make sure, you know, taking your medicine twice a day, be really, really regimented with my with my medical um, practices with my doctors and not taking any of that for granted. So you get the transplant for the second time. And then what was the recovery with? Because there's some bumps along that road, isn't there? Yeah. So the actual transplant went extremely well. I think it was, you know, an eight hour procedure came out of it, came out of it. Um, great. I was actually doing so well that they took me off the ventilator the next day. Oh, so within 24 hours, you were breathing on your own. Yeah, I was ready to roll. I was good to go. Um, one of the things that happened to me. So one of the things that I got when I was in, um, 1994, after that rejection episode, I developed uh, gastroparesis. For those that don't know what that is, it's just my stomach doesn't digest as properly as it should. Um, so I have, you know, bouts of nausea, you know, days I don't feel well. But overall, you know, I live a, a fairly normal life. Where it really affected me was, and what we kind of deduced after this, after the surgery was, so they took me off the vent. I was breathing on my own. I, I had a couple things to drink, um, getting ready to sit up. Well, my stomach hadn't quite woken up yet. So while I was extremely thirsty, I ended up uh, throwing up because my stomach wasn't awake, aspirated, and like completely to the point where if you looked at my x-rays afterwards, you couldn't even see the black of my lungs. It was completely white. And then that caused me to then have a stroke on the left side of my body. And then that turned into like a five-week ordeal with me where um, had the stroke, which then led to, you know, me being on the vent for for five weeks, not eating or drinking anything for five weeks. Did they ever have to do like a trach or anything? Yeah. So right. So right. So the day before they took me off the vent, they put a trach in. It was probably it was probably a little upsetting. Yeah, just bad timing because. Uh, so yeah. So it was just kind of. I don't remember it going in or anything like that. I do remember them having to take it out and the kind of the anxiety around that just because you have a hole in your neck. 
Right. Um, and then you're like, oh, my gosh, is that going to heal up? But, uh, but yeah, so, uh, like I said, I lost the 40 pounds. I had the stroke. I had to really learn how to rewalk, talk, uh, do all my gross motor skills back. And I was very fortunate, though. I bounced back even with the stroke and all the complications on that. I did physical therapy for three or four months. Even after that and the complications from my surgery in January, I was back at work in April um, and almost, quote, unquote, back to normal. So I've been extremely fortunate kind of through this journey to be able to bounce back uh, multiple times through multiple things and kind of live, continue living as normal a life as you could. So what about your family's journey with you through all this? How was that dynamic? Whatever you're willing to share. No, it's no, it's, fine. it's fair. So when I was younger, um, my uh, I think it was such a whirlwind because it all happened in three months. And we didn't know a ton back then. My parents have all were always, you know, with me, supportive. My mom stayed in the hospital with me when I was in, when I had my first transplant in 1990. And then as they knew I was getting sicker, quote unquote sicker, and my mom was saving up. My mom's a nurse. So she was saving up her vacation time for about three years. She didn't take a day of vacation. So when I had my second transplant in 2011, she stayed in the hospital with me for those six weeks while I, you know, recovered and was able to kind of go back to their house and then go into physical therapy and then eventually move back home after four months. Um, While we kind of didn't know at the beginning where the cardiomyopathy came from, my dad ended up developing it, um, ended up developing cardiomyopathy. They They were also, they weren't, he didn't get to the point where he needed a transplant, but they were able to treat him with medicine at the time. And then we were able to kind of trace back our family tree a little bit and realize that his uncle died at an early age in his mid-30s and kind of understood that that was probably the cause was cardiomyopathy. So it kind of traces our family tree to a certain degree. And that was it was good and bad news. One, we knew where it kind of came from, so it just wasn't out of the blue, but it was also kind of scary that it was kind of in our genetic code. Yeah, that has to be a little bit daunting because you have an answer, but then you think about the fact that, you know, if you if you have children they could be dealing with something similar. Correct. So, so before my wife and I, so we, we do have a, we do have an 18 month old. So we did a bunch of genetic testing and everything before that, and, uh, just to make sure that everything was okay. Um, but yeah, that's something that, that definitely is in the back of your mind as you, as you have family, as you have children. Now I know kind of what my, that's the degree my parents went through because my, my child, unfortunately right now is very healthy, but you know, just seeing your, your kid go through life and death circumstances multiple times, and then I have a younger brother, too, that, you know, he's been checked out for heart issues and he's, you know, he's healthy. But just knowing that um, that they've they've probably dealt with the harder part of it, seeing me sick, seeing me, you know, code, seeing me, you know, really die a few times and then come back. You know, they've had to deal with more of the stress than I have because I'm like, I've never had I've never had the feeling that I wasn't going to make it. I'm just a very stubborn person. Um, one of the things that they told me originally was after I, you know, after I was sick and dealing with, after the stroke and everything, after my second transplant, they told me I'd you know, be very fortunate if I was able to do anything. And I was like, well, that just kind of gave me motivation to, to move forward and show them that they were wrong. And so my, I think my parents and my family really had to deal with all the anxiety and all seeing me ill. And I just knew I was sick, but I just had to fight through it. And it's easier for me to probably fight through it than it was for them to see me fight through it, if that makes sense. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess in a way, having two transplants when the second one came around you were just like all right this old thing again meanwhile i'm sure your family had a whole bunch of other things that they were also trying to you know address or or think about but you were just focused on the one thing 
So I guess in a way it does make sense, you know, that even being in that fragile state, all you're focused on is just like, let's do the transplant, let's get it done, let's start on, you know, my next chapter. Yeah, because they have to deal with the doctors when I couldn't talk and they had to deal with me being, you know, in a really pissy mood if I wasn't feeling good and deal with the fact that I may or may not make it. And, you know, I was just going under the impression, even when I was as sick as I've ever been sick, you know, I don't remember a ton when I was nine, but I do remember being sick. I remember... There were some low points there and there were some low points, you know, when I was 29 too, but I've always had the, I've always had the attitude that things work out in the end. So I never, I don't go to a place of negativity. I think that's one of the things that has helped me personally is I'm very optimistic. I'm just think things will work out. And if they don't, I can't control it anyway. So I'm just going to go live my life to the best of my ability. And I think for my parents and my family to kind of see the harder part of that, I think if I was in their shoes, it would be a little harder situation for me, too. But, yeah, to your point, I was just, you know, I really wanted to get back to work. I just wanted to get back to living my, my normal life. And then, you know, eight months after that transplant, I met, you know, my, my future wife, you know, at a work meeting, and we've been together ever since. So it's like, you know, really just trying to put that next foot forward and, and continue to uh, continue to move on and, you know, take my medicine and try to promote organ donation as much as possible because I think the more people can see people living a normal life, the more it kind of helps dispel some of the sediment around it. Is there going to be restrictions? Is there going to be bad things that happen? And yes, there can be, and there are some restrictions, but the opportunities are out there to, to live as normal a life as you obviously want to. And and I want that to really come out the, the, as the biggest thing is that there's really nothing holding you back. So what is some of the things that, that changed, I guess, after your second transplant versus your first one? Yeah, so the medicine was definitely better. So I, when I was, um, after my first transplant, uh, you know, a lot of advancement happens in 20 years. So, yeah, so I was on, I think I was on cyclosporin, and then I went over to change to Neoral after a time, and those are still wonderful drugs. Um, and I think the fact that I was on immunosuppressant drugs for for 20 years helped me um, the second time around, but I take I take Prograf now, and I think the medicine regimen is a little more structured, and I've been able, I was able to get off prednisone, like, within three or four months, where with the first transplant, I was on it for at least two years right after the first transplant. And um, just the, the the attention to the medical procedures. So I'd go in for biopsies every two or three weeks. Now I'm to the point now where I see my doctors twice a year because I'm, you know, seven, eight years out on the second one. I haven't had a single issue. I see my doctors a couple times a year, and I really only get the procedures done, you know, once a year now. Um, the biggest change is kind of the medical regimen and then quality of life is still the same, but the, the being off of all those medicines definitely helps because they got me off a decent amount of meds pretty quickly. And that just makes your body feel good. Cause when you take a handful every day, it can definitely weigh on you. So, um, it helps out, especially with my stomach having some issues too. That's the biggest difference from 1990 to 2011 is kind of the, the medical treatment and the, the approach overall to, um, to how they treat the, the, the organ and the, and the procedures. So my other thing, too, is were you scared after that that second one? Maybe not scared, but were you nervous about the potential for rejection? Was that just something that you were like, all right, here we go again? Um, I asked before I had the transplant, um, I did ask the question. Um, I said, you know, I had I had the rejection in 94. Is there a chance it could come back? I had um, I, I for all intents and purposes, I had coronary artery disease, you know, from that rejection and that what was causing the, um, the the blockages. And I asked if it could come back. And kind of the answer was it could, but we don't know if it will. But it isn't anything that should prevent you, know, you from going forward with the surgery. I think his confidence in that statement and my belief in that statement 
really um, boosted my confidence in the fact that the transplant would work. And kind of like I said before, I don't, I don't ever really think anything's going to go wrong with my with my heart. I, I take my meds. I live a pretty healthy lifestyle. I think you can always do better, a little more exercise, a little more healthy eating. But um, I go into I go into every day like you know I take my meds and I live my day how I go and. I feel like as long as I'm feeling fine, I don't. Even, I never even think about rejection. I don't even think about the fact that I have a transplant unless something comes out where I'm like promoting organ donation or talking about it in a, in a different setting. I just, I just live my life like a normal, you know, middle-aged guy working with a family, and it, it doesn't even really cross my mind at all. And if it does happen, then I think I would just deal with it as it came. But my attitude is just about sticking with how healthy I do feel, how grateful I am to, to feel the way I am and the blessings that I've you know, had from, from those two donors and not taking that for granted. Well, and speaking of donors, I mean, were you able to establish contact? I know you said that the laws did change with HIPAA, and I do know that it's a lot different probably now versus when it was when you had your first transplant in the 90s in terms of contacting the families or having that interaction. So do you find yourself ever thinking about them or what would you say to them? Or did you write them a letter? I know that some people have shared with me that, you know, you're able to write a letter sometimes and like the Donate Life will send it to that family on your behalf. Yeah. So in in 1990, we did write the family a letter. Um, We didn't hear back directly from them, but it was kind of a weird connection. So we have a big, I'm coming from Italian, my family's all Italian, so we have big families, do a lot of family stuff. So the reason we found out so much about the first transplant was my great aunt played bridge with the grandmother of the, of the, of the girl who I got the heart from. It just happened to be a random connection that we made. So we were living in Illinois. My great aunt and this lady's um, grandmother lived in Illinois. And we just happened to find out through that connection that it was her granddaughter that passed away. And it was just the timing was just perfect that we found out that that was the heart. So that was a really weird and kind of surreal connection that we had that connectivity through the grandmother. Um, So we wrote the family a letter and we didn't hear back anything like really formally other than, you know, we're glad we're glad you're doing well. And that was pretty much it. Kind of left it at that. But that it was it was nice to have that other connection to know that. They knew we were appreciative of it, and that was important, and is so important to me. And that, I, and then I was living, a, you know, a good life from the loss of their daughter. From from the second one, we were just told it was a young and healthy heart. We did write a letter on the second one, but we haven't heard back on that one. And I completely understand and completely appreciate that aspect of it too. It's definitely hard to lose a, a loved one, especially if it did end up being somebody that was a little, little younger. So, um, definitely understand, you know, the family not wanting to reach out, but they, they have my information if they ever do want to. And, and I'd be definitely open to that as well. But I think it's to each person's decision how they want to handle that situation. Right. I mean, it's got to be tough to, to make those decisions. And I guess instinctually you want to personally like thank them in some way and, but it's a delicate topic for anybody. I mean, you're talking about people, the only way that you can get specifically that the heart is, you know, their loved one ha- is deceased. So it definitely probably makes that gratitude a little bit, a little bit more humbling, perhaps to that family to, to make that choice. But what got you involved with um, like the AHA and everything? How were you approached about that? Yeah. So when I was in, uh, when I was living in Illinois, um, they, the local chapter had reached out and they were doing a heart walk and I was asked to do like a, I was, I think I was like, I was a young adult. I was probably like, I don't know, 17 or 16. And they had asked me to kind of give a speech before the heart walk. 
And so I got up there and kind of really shared my story. Um, my Where my dad worked at the time was one of the sponsors of the local chapter. And uh, through that, they had kind of asked me to, to kind of share my story. I did that. And then I really just stayed connected through social media with them. I did a little more involvement with the, the chapter in Illinois while I lived there. But, that you know, that was um, that was way back in in the early 2000s, and then I've just kind of kept up with them through social media and events kind of everywhere. When I lived in Tennessee, I had some involvement with them. I did some volunteer activities, but nothing to the degree that, that I did when I was when I was younger. And then, you know, through social media, I've been able to really keep in touch and connected with their, their social media accounts. And, you know, they had approached me, you know, a few weeks back if I would kind of share my story because I shared some of the information on, on social media. And so I wrote, was able to kind of wrote, write out my journey on their support page, which, which is really great because if, if anybody goes on there, it really shows a lot of brave, you know, men, women, and children that have gone through a lot of different scenarios, a lot of things, a lot of trials and tribulations, a lot worse than mine, and still come out positively and strong on, on, the, on the other end, you know, thankful for the gift of organ donation and also working through, um, you know, heart disease and, and stroke. Um, so, you know, I was very fortunate for them to ask and very privileged for them to ask, you know, me to kind of share my story and, I hope that, you know, when people read about how well I'm doing, it encourages them that they feel like they're ever in a, in, a, in a position where they feel a little down or there's not, you know, an end in sight. If, you know, they do get a chance to kind of you know, go through a transplant or go through cardiac rehab or get through a stroke and, you know, you get on the other side of that and get through the pain and the, and the hardship that comes with working through that, there's still, you know, good things that can that can come on the other end of that other end of that um, tunnel. Well, like you said, you, you have a family and, you know, you're you're living your life and you're doing, you're working and, and doing what you love. It's all, you know, through the gift of life uh, that you're able to do that. Yeah. If it wasn't for those two donors, uh, you know, I would have, I would have passed away at nine years old. I would have never met my wife. I would have never been able to travel and experience everything I've done. I've, I've literally traveled the world and I'm in my late thirties now, but I've literally traveled the world and I've done that with 28, 29 years worth of donated organs. So you know, my life up to the point where I had before I was nine, I, you know, I did a ton of stuff as a kid. But I really, you know, you really don't experience a ton of life that age, at least independent of what your parents do with you. So I've really been fortunate that, you know, had a chance, to, you know, to meet my wife, got married. We have a, we have a son now. I've lived in four different states. I've traveled across the country, across the world. I've got to experience a multitude of different things. Um and if and if that first family wouldn't have been a donate family, I wouldn't be here now. And if that second one wouldn't have been around, I wouldn't be here here either. So it's it's only you know at, at their um, you know with their selfless acts are the reason that I have a chance to live life. And the one thing I try to do is you know even though the family didn't reach out to me on the second one, if they ever do, you know I want them to know that I'm trying to live the best life. You know now third chance that's been given to me, I'm trying to live it to the fullest and. Definitely don't take it for granted at all because I know how precious life can be, you know, being through some of the ups and downs I've been with. And, and I do want other people to know that organ donation, you know, it can be scary to go through the surgeries and there's a lot of, of rehab and there's a lot to, that makes you feel that takes to get feeling better. But once you do, you know, you, you can pretty much live a normal life without anybody knowing. Like if I didn't tell you right now I had a transplant, I don't you would never know. You know, I just I go to work every day and come home, have a family, do whatever and really no limitations. And. That's what I would want really people to, to focus on. I was about to say, well, it's one thing you would want people to take away, but you already took it away from me. <laughs> You're ahead of me on that. Um, is there something, though, that you definitely want people just like to really stick in their brain when they listen to this? And Yeah, that if, you know, if, if they're on the fence about, you know, becoming a donor, 
I would really think about it and then, you know, take the fact that you do have a chance to save somebody's life. Or if you're in a position that, you know, you're just nervous because you know you have to go through go through a surgery or, you know, you're, you're on a waiting list and you're waiting. You, know, you never know what the outcome can be, but if you, if you get the opportunity to get that donated organ, you can live a normal life in, in the end. And, 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 and that's the biggest thing because when I was, you know, when I was nine, I think one of the peri- worries of my parents were, you know, was he going to be able to live a normal life? And I think, you know, out of the, the years I've been on this earth so far, I think I've lived an extremely normal life, a very blessed life, a very fulfilled life. And, um, you know, I, I'd live it without limitation. And um, that's a, that's the, the biggest thing I would cross is, you know, if, if, if you're in a position where you feel comfortable donating, that's the greatest thing that you can give to somebody is, you know, another chance to live. And then if you get that opportunity to get that donated organ, whatever it may be, you know, just try to live your life to the fullest so you can continue to work and, you know, don't take that opportunity for granted. I think that's something that everybody needs to always keep in mind is, you know, life is life is not tomorrow's not guaranteed to anybody and life can be short. So um, might as well donate life. Yes. Donate life. Uh, thank you for joining me tonight and taking time out of your day. Appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for the time. Um, I am going to make sure that if you're listening to this and you want to read more about Brian's story, there's a link for the AHA on that. And um, is there anything else you would want people to maybe involve themselves with? Yeah. So the American Heart Association, you know, does a lot of work for support. Um, and then, you know, your local, uh, there's local chapters there that do stuff. I'm very heavily involved in Make-A-Wish as well. We were, I was granted a wish at nine Ooh. through Make-A-Wish and I've been a volunteer. Wait, what was it? Uh, we went to Disney. Oh, that's perfect. Yeah. So um, I've been a volunteer with Make-A-Wish since 1999 um, in every state that I've lived in. So that's one of the great areas that, you know, that gives back to people, that have, to children that have gone through things. And then you know, there's also your local Donate Life um, chapters in each state. You know, just connectivity between that and bringing awareness to everything is, is always good. There's a lot of stuff on social media now that you can follow. There's a lot of support groups through those channels. There's some stuff on Facebook. Um, there's also some kind of BS on there too, just with, you know, the way people complain about different things too, but a lot of that's positive and there's a lot of avenues that people can go and learn more about organ donation and, and the, and the support groups around that. Perfect. I would say the same thing, right? There's a lot of support, but just, uh, tread lightly out there, especially on the internet. Thanks again goes out to Brian for joining me this week in sharing his story. Now, in the show notes, you'll find info on how to connect with him if you want to know more about his journey, as well as some resources about organ donation. Now, for the next episode, as a way of wrapping up this whole entire segment and these episodes I've done on organ donation, I figured it was time to separate the fact from the fiction regarding the gift of life. And to do so, I called in some hometown reinforcement. So get ready to get some myths busted regarding organ donation. These episodes, though, wouldn't be possible without some creative inspiration from a few different people. So again, I want to give a shout out, a kudos, a thank you to Melissa from Moms and Murder for the inspiration, to Chi-Town Chicago Meg for the connections, and TJ for being an editing machine. Now, as always, believe in the good, practice random acts of kindness, and consider becoming an organ donor today.